Hello. Hey. Long time. What podcast is this? Like 120. We're still a little backed up. Well, it's been a minute. Yeah, yeah. It's been a minute since we recorded. It has not been a minute for our listeners because we've recorded so much in the past that I've just been playing ketchup and mustard. Wow, there you go. Yeah. Nice pun, Dad. Welcome to the Welcome to the, the Cult Podcast where We're your hosts. <laughs> Well, your dreams are our dreams, and every day <laughs> is a new day. Are we introducing ourselves? This is us. I just thought it'd be funny to do that. Whatever. Welcome to the... Welcome to day 128. This is the Cult Podcast. I'm your host, Steve. I'm Gabe. <laughs> what if we did trade lives for a day? I've pitched that to you, and you're like, nah, <laughs> I couldn't do it. I wouldn't do it for you. I think you're you're much better off as Steven than as Gabe. Um, I'm going to have to agree with you there. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't want anyone else to have to just be bored out of their mind as me. But there's been a lot of stuff coming out for us as recording this. Yeah, we uh, are still playing catch up as new things are coming out. And we've been watching stuff. We've been watching stuff, new things, old things. All good things. <laughs> Future things. We're excited. There's a more news every day about what 2022 has to offer us on the media front. Yeah, I just made my slash our list for the year of television and film. There's a lot of stuff on the docket. And most of it was only from like the first half. Red of Rocket. Too, which we haven't seen. We haven't seen it yet. Is it? You said it's coming on VOD soon, right? Probably, yeah. Yeah, I missed that one in theaters. I'm kind of bummed about it. Well, you'll get him next time, Chief. Will I? So I thought it'd be fun to ask you the question, what's this podcast about? You mean generally speaking, like what's our podcast about? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, is that actually what you meant? Yeah. (laughs) I thought you meant like what is today's cast? No. No. This podcast is... For for listeners (laughs) who don't know us. I wouldn't know how to sell it. You know, I'd say we're two dudes... We're in a back room uh, just talking about uh, movies and TV and sometimes games or music, uh, sometimes news. What do you think is unique about our podcast? Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we have have a distinctive voice, I think. Not necessarily in tone or timbre. Timbre? Timbre? Timbre. Timbre. I need... (laughs) Not necessarily in tone or timbre, although you do have a nice quality to your voice. A little sultry. It's very, it's very uh, sultraction. Listenable. Your voice is also listenable. Ear. Otherwise, I wouldn't have you here. Ear feel for your voice is, I think, high. It's high. It's good. It's very. (laughs) It's good. But I think we have um, a unique voice in that we uh, we approach a conversation or topic critically. And we try to have, uh, you know, an intelligent discourse, but also entertaining. I think there's a chemistry and a... Well said. There's a comedy. We're always looking to crack a joke, you know, to... Amidst the severity of... We we live in intense times, and sometimes the levity is lost, I think. I'm not... I don't... I live in a house. I don't live in a tent. (laughs) That's what I'm talking about. (laughs) You always bring your A game to the podcast. And I'm I, just I here, feel like I'm, I'm bringing my B game, but and that's why I think uh, it's a fun, it's a fun listen. You know, I do think the feedback that I've heard from our listeners is that we often 
help people see things from an, another perspective. I don't know what that perspective is. It's probably the pocket dimension that we are discussing today on this Ooh, episode. Nice segue. We, uh, we try to balance our takes. Sometimes we, we usually have pretty like-minded opinions, but we like to challenge each other. We do challenge each other. And you particularly have a lot of hot takes. I have hot take after hot take. My takes aren't always as hot, Especially but sometimes... Especially when I'm eating hot pot. Hot pot. Your favorite food. It is. And I've... Would you rather have hot pot... Over everything. Or Lunita's pizza? Hot pot. Whoa. That's Actually, saying, hold on. Let me think. That's saying something, folks. <laughs> that was my reflex. Let me think for a minute. I said hot pot. I said hot pot, right? The thing that I love about hot pot is that afterwards... What do you love about hot pot? It's it's like not bad for you because it's just... <laughs> it's meat and vegetables in a broth. I mean, comparatively to a, to a gourmet pizza. How is it different from pho or... Just because you can eat as much as you want. Uh, I like like the get up and go like buffet style of most of the hot pot places I've been to, where you just keep bringing me hot meat pot. and I can like get all this other stuff. Usually sure. with pho or with ramen, it's like they give you a bowl and it's just like now here's your food and eat it and leave. But hot pot's like it's an experience. Yeah, you know, and, and I you keep... get to you get to like if you mess up cooking your stuff, it's your fault. Yeah, and you you can yeah. cook it exactly to your specifications. Like if you want that meat less done. Oh more done you just leave your meat in there i don't think i've ever questioned myself more than when trying to cook my food over hot pot really? i was like <laughs> you have like a, a <laughs> is thing, it done you have a thing of corn <laughs> no you have a thing of corn you're like am i supposed to shave it in do i put the whole cob in what do i do when do i know that it's done you know i don't know what to do with gives you all this variety in front of you that's the magic it's done when you when you want it i need be. a hot pot professional alongside I, me I, I could teach you you need you need a teacher. <laughs> be my teacher. Be the Kylo to your Ray. That's weird. Never mind. Moving on. Interdimensional sexual touch. Yeah. Uh Star Wars. You <laughs> <laughs> So today we're doing a new show on Netflix recommended to us by our dear friend Alan Dukes of the Nerd World Order. Uh, you can find him at Nerd World Order on Facebook or website or look up hashtag IMNWO anywhere. I am as in the name of God. I am not I letter M. Thank you, Alan, for recommending it. I asked Gabe to watch it and then tell <laughs> me if it's good because I didn't. Uh, I was busy watching other stuff. And then he watched it and was like, yeah, we should probably talk about this because it's right up our alley. Uh, but you wanted to talk about something else really quick that also was put on Netflix a few weeks ago, a few weeks oh, yeah. prior to Archive 81. Yeah, Archive haven't... 81 came out of nowhere, though, by the way. But this other Doesn't thing, most of Netflix just come out of nowhere? I guess. But this other thing also came out of nowhere. I'd never heard of it. And you're yeah. like, here's the thing. Yeah, there was a stop motion film called The House that came out like a few weeks ago on Netflix. And I just wanted to mention it because it was interesting. It's three short films, by 30 minutes of pop. By three different directors, you said, right? Yeah, three different directors. I think one of them was co-directed to, with two people. Uh, little vignettes tied together thematically. And it was all stop motion. And it was all kind of uh, a horror anthology, if you will. So if you like that sort of thing, like a, Tim Burton, Wes Anderson-esque uh, little fever dream. I would absolutely recommend it. The first one was my favorite. The first of the three vignettes was about a family who just moved into a house and it's like a surrealist kind of uh, 
uh, who's the Pedro Steps guy, the architect who like that's the surrealist. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. I don't know his name, but I know what you're talking. Yeah, the 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 house doesn't make sense physic- right. in our physical space, mm-hmm. our understanding of <laughs> how the natural world works. So it's a cool little mind trip. And if it, stop motion was something that terrified me as a kid, I stayed as far away from Tim Burton as I could. It was like literal nightmare fuel. But now as I've gotten older and the scariest things to me now are the things like taxes and, you know, my existential <laughs> crisis. So the real world, the real world has pushed the boogeyman aside and now I can enjoy the boogeyman for what he is, which is nothing. A good, it's a good fiction. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, so my, since you had said that to me, cause you told me that a while ago, the first, uh, third was your favorite. The first yeah. work of this sort of anthology movie mm-hmm. it's the same house right that people keep coming to or whatever uh it is or is it undetermined it's it's not outright stated but it's basically the house is the thread that binds these three stories together so my main my my question that i have had is what about the other two thirds did you not like and why uh the, i think the first one just was both the most interesting from a narrative perspective and also stylistically the most not impressive but uh, interesting to me it had the most horror in it like the elements of it were it was scary it was there was dread there was terror the second one was a little bit more anxiety inducing from a like a modern day standpoint the second one was about like the guy it was there's a well, interesting to note, the first one was dealing with people, like puppets that were people. The second two vignettes are with animals as your characters. Personified animals. Like, yeah. Sort of like Fantastic like, Mr. Like, yeah, Fox. Exactly yeah. like that. Yeah. The second one was rats, and the third one was, I think they were, thinking back on it. Foxes. They were foxes or something. Yeah, yeah. Not sure. But yeah, the second one was- Real t- original. <laughs> I've never seen that before. But yeah, I would, I would highly recommend- if you're into this weird kind of stuff, at least check out the first vignette. It's 30 minutes, and it is thematically dense. I oh. it, That was the other thing. Like, the other two, it was pretty clear what they were doing. Like, the second vignette was uh, superficial, hard-on-its-sleeve story about, like, parasites. Uh, the third one was about, the one with the foxes was, like, finding your own path and letting go of the past, moving forward. But the first one was very much more ambiguous and harder to chew on for me, which is why it's one of the reasons it stayed with me. There's kind of a generational trauma. It, it has aspects of like parenting and what that is. What uh, is parenting, Gabe? Can you define parenting? No, I mean, I. What's parenting? That's why I'd like you to watch it because you could tell me more about parenting. Okay. Uh, Are you saying I'm a I mean, parent? I like to think about parenting. I'm not a parent, but I am a parent. I mean, I'm apparently here. <laughs> I know. I was trying to think of that. You, while you were saying it was so surrealist, it didn't even seem like it was apparent. You know. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. A few other stop motion things we should probably shout out that are interesting to us or look interesting to us coming out in the future. Uh, Guillermo del Toro is also putting out a stop motion version of Pinocchio, or like a retelling of Pinocchio. Which is funny because, again, I just made my list for 2022. It's coming out like a month later within weeks of the Disney version, the live action Disney version of Pinocchio. Uh, that will also come on Netflix. So that stop motion looks really interesting. But it's it's supposed to supposed to be darker. You know, it's Guillermo del Toro, probably closer to what the original book 
was like. Mm-hmm. And then there's another movie that's really, really interesting, a stop motion film coming out by Phil Tippett. Yeah. Yeah. I've been waiting to see that, that he did a, uh, the guy that did all the stop motion work for the original star Wars trilogy, as well as Jurassic park and starship troopers. Yep. But yeah, Phil Tippett's mad God, I don't think has been released yet to the general public. He did some touring last year. He's been working on it for like 25 years or something like that. 30 yeah, years. Yeah, And he's released snippets of this animation film S- snippet of Tippet? Tippet snippets. He's released small chunks of it over the years, but never, he hasn't released it as it's in its entirety yet. So I'm excited to see that stop motion's cool. There's, yeah, you can really see, what was it? I just saw. You saw Coraline. Yeah. Last year I got the chance to see Coraline. Cause again, as a kid, I didn't watch that sort of stuff because it terrified me, but watching it again, there's such a level of artistry. Yeah. And I never knew the premise of Coraline, but it was really interesting. It's cool. It's basically, there's an upside down world. With yeah. Well, the idea of again, parenting and yeah. in that film, huge, I had never, I never knew what that was actually about because she's being ignored by her parents and she looks for a way, a different way, a different set of parents in a way, which yeah. is so fascinating. I loved it. And seeing it too on the big screen was pretty special. Also talk about, talk about horrifying and like terror. Oh yeah. Which is why not cool. having, not having good parents is horrifying to me these days. One the scariest of the, thing. One of the, one of the scariest things. Yeah. Anyway, what was the other one? I think, was it Paranorman? That was one of them. Have you seen that? No. That one's really good. I really liked the world that they built in that that movie. Um, I never saw Corpse Bride. Did you, have you seen Nightmare yet? No. I'm you should. St- I'm still warming up to to those. <laughs> J- James and the Giant Peach. We used to watch a lot growing up. I think I did see that. That one's weird. There was one called like Monster House as well. Yeah. Which I think as a kid I I left the theater <laughs> in that movie because I was yeah. so scared. And the <laughs> most the most recent Wes Anderson stop motion was Isle of Dogs, which is also really good. Yeah. One of the better Wes Anderson films, I would say. Really anyway, let's let's pivot. Moving forward with that uh, theme and tone of dread and horror. Theme and tone. But lightly. Another Netflix production we're here to talk about today. That came out two weeks ago. Yeah. It's called... It's called Archives. Archive. Archives 81. 18. Ar- no, it's Archive 81. Oh, which is, like you said, Dukes turned us on to this. I had actually seen stuff for it for a little while, but... I had never heard of it. I had to, I didn't have a lot of faith in it because Netflix, you know, is always about quantity over quality. So, yes, exactly. And that was something we were discussing earlier uh, privately off, off cast. Yeah. But it seemed to me when it popped up like something that, you know, just another thing that comes out in, the, in January on Netflix that doesn't matter. Yeah. Like the new Kristen Bell show that oh like my God. the girl across the street from the window across the street a, from the other girl, whatever. I legitimately thought that was a, a comedy or a parody yeah. when I first heard it because it's a playoff of like three different yeah. uh, recent titles. We started watching it no. and turned it off because, well, Allie was interested in it because it's Kristen Bell. I like Kristen Bell a lot Is it play- in a lot of other things she's done. But you're saying it's not a, it's not a parody. That's what you're saying. No, it's like a... How is it not a parody with a title like that? It's like the woman in the house across from the street on the train in the attic. In the window. In the window. <laughs> in the floor. And even the the picture of the thumbnail on Netflix is like Kristen Bell like doing yeah. a like a funny. Sexy selfie. It's so weird. I don't yeah. know. I can't believe it's real. Anyway. It is real. It's so real that we turn it off. Oh. 
no, it's just, it just wasn't really very engaging. So, uh, but archive was trending is like number one on Netflix for a couple weeks ish or around number one. Yeah. Word of mouth seems to be spreading and it is just like the mold spreads Ooh, in archive 81. Nice. Anyway, we're talking about archive 81 from here on. Yeah. Kristen Bell is not in archive 81. Can you talk about who's in it? Sure. This well, is our, this is our favorite segment. Let me just say before I or, jump into that, uh, with a little bit of context, this is an eight episode series yes. on Netflix that is adapted from a podcast drama called uh, from from recent history called uh, called Archive Eighty One. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. But it, uh, let me tell you who I'm on Phil Tippett's page. Let me back up. Tippett snippets. <laughs> Tippett snippets. <laughs> yeah, the original podcast uh, was developed by I believe Daniel Powell and Mark Solinger. Okay. And so I don't know how what the story is for who got the rights to develop it. I heard it was a three season podcast. Is that true? Yeah, it's three. I, w- I don't know if they call them seasons, but it's like three parts. And so saisons. I'm not sure if season one of Archive 81 followed the first part of the podcast drama directly, but they've certainly set us up for more Archive 81. And it probably is not going to be an anthology. It's probably going to be more. Yeah. of our story that we've come to Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. for sure. Uh, and the series is developed by Rebecca Sonnenschein, who doesn't have a lot on her page here other than she was a producer on The Boys and The Vampire Diaries. Mm-hmm. And boy, was I impressed with her producing of this show. Yeah, with a, with a group of directors they had, yeah. including Rebecca Thomas, who did four of those. Mm-hmm. She was one of the directors they had on Stranger Things. Really and good. As well as uh, two of my favorite indie film directors working right now, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, who are working on Moon Knight. Oh, that's right. These guys are really great with surrealism, and so this was perfect right up their alley for the weird fiction kind of storytelling. Uh, yeah. Lovecraftian, you know, vibe. Because mm-hmm. that's what this show is. It's um, the story. It has. It's like a Lovecraftian. The best way I can describe it as I referenced it to Stephen for the first time, uh, I referenced it against a show he hadn't seen yet called Devs, which is Alex Garland's series from a couple years ago on Hulu. It was like, to me, it was a Lovecraftian, more analog version of Devs, and by that I mean it's not as hard as into the tech. It's not as hard into the tech as Devs, but it still deals with stuff like videotapes and cassettes and stuff like that that's very important for the storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's like that. It's like Devs meets The Empty Man. The Empty, the man, empty, the man, empty man is empty an man. incredible movie. The Empty Man. Yeah. Uh, a little horror film by David Pryor, who is kind of a protege of David, David Fincher, Fincher yeah. who worked with him for upwards of 20 years. So I watched it two years ago on Amazon and uh, immediately fell in love with it. And Stephen watched it. It's so good. I mean, it's so good. Like I... I can't say anything apart from the fact that it's so good. It's like if Fincher did a movie about Lovecraftian cult. Like, it's like, basically, I feel like that's... It's in the genre of what we call on this podcast, because of Robert Eggers, horror adjacent, which is... It leans a little bit more mainline, I think, than that. Yeah, but it it doesn't by the end of it. Well, that's true. That's true. That's true. Or at least that's... It's, it's It's not like an Eggers film or an Astor film. It's more like... Yeah, no, you're right. You're, you're right, but it, it has the ending that makes it more adjacent because it's not straight up in your face horror. It's more like a mystery thriller. Yeah. So 
So I would recommend both of those things if what we're going to talk about today has any interest. Because particularly, I think this tonally is is closer to the Empty Man than Devs. But yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's, so who's in? Talk to me about the cast. Most of the cast is pretty small time, but amazing nonetheless. Led by, and here we go. Uh, wish me luck, Stephen, as I pronounce these nope, names. I'm just going to laugh because there's a lot of difficult names on go, this list. Go ahead. I can't wait. Our main character Dan Turner. Let's do it. Is played by Mamudu <laughs> Athi. Nah, how do you spell his last name? It's Mamudu Athi. <laughs> that is a rough one. Phonetically, that's as good as I can. I would do. say it could be Athi, but yeah, Athi, 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 Athi. Yeah, I would. I would say Athi. He was great. He was my first reason. Or for even a tie. You, you know, you're probably right. Yeah. Judging by my track record of being completely wrong. Athi. It could be Athi. Anyway, it's probably let's is. move on. Yeah. yeah. He was great. The other lead is Melody Pendress, played by Dina. Shahab, Shahabi, Shahabi, who is a Saudi Arabian actress. Is she really? Yeah, working in the United States, yeah. I would not have guessed that. Also, characters of note, we have Samuel, uh, played by Evan Jonagite, Jonagite, who has also been in uh, The Empty Man. He was in the beginning. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's how I knew him. As well as he was in The Night House, which was Rebecca Hall's great horror film from last year. Uh, Julia Chan plays Annabelle. We have Dan's friend Mark Higgins, played by Matt McGorney. McGorry. McGorry. And then Dan's dad is played by Charlie Hudson III. And then there's just a bunch of characters. Who plays Jess? She's a really prominent. Oh, yeah. Jess is Ariana Neal. There you go. She was great. She actually was potentially my favorite part. She was in Fruitvale Station. We have uh, Virgil Davenport, played by Martin Donovan. He was in Tenet. He was the guy who brought in... That's right. Washington's character. He's like, he's yeah. basically the guy who's like, we're, we're Tenet. Here's Tenet. Yeah. This is what Tenet is. Let me show you the Tenet. It'll open the right doors, some of the wrong ones too. But yeah, that's our uh, that's our cast. But a lot of great smaller performances that are very memorable in my mind. Oh, like... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know. I do know. <laughs> very, very cool. I did I did a motion yeah. <laughs> toward my face and gave new what I meant immediately. This would so probably let's talk about, yeah, I was we'll blow say, the doors yeah, off this spoilers from this point, full spoilers, because I loved this show for the most part. And I'll just say that outright. This show really impressed me. I was not 50, 50, but like 75, 25, I would say. I don't love some of what they did, uh, at the end resolving plot. Cause sometimes a lot of shows just kind of have to rush into their resolution to end the show. And I thought the end made the show better. I didn't like the middle. The middle? Yeah. But we can both agree the very middling. The first parts were the best. Uh, yeah, the first three to four episodes were great. And I think that is where like the, the bulk of the conversation lies in terms of like what we talk about a lot on this podcast, which is tone. Tone. And establishing an atmosphere of, for your show that is not only really good, but also unique in that it has its own voice. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that credit for me, uh, which is one of the first things that drew me to the show, even before it was recommended to us, is that it has the same composers yes. from Alex Garland's work yeah. of recent years, which is Ben Salisbury and Jeff Barrow. And sound design and music is one of the biggest parts of this show. Yeah. Both. The biggest draw. Yeah. The, mo- the moment that you start hearing those pieces of music or or that eerie melody the, no the score or the instrumentation and, and the voices the voice work that's in this show is 
you know, it makes the show what it is. Yeah. The, the drawback for me is it, it kept reverting to that same thing throughout the whole show, all eight episodes. I would have liked to see them expand on that theme just slightly here and there as, as the show progressed, but Mm -hmm. still very, very good, very noteworthy. It made me run up to Gabe squealing like a little girl (laughs) going, who's composing this? Yeah. And uh, because because it's so unique, it's so good, and definitely plays into the tone. I think they've been a part of every Garland project since uh, Dread. They initially did the score for Dread, which was the Carl Urban remake, but it was denied by the studio, I think, and they went with another composer. For being too good? <laughs> yeah, just di- difference of opinion, I guess. And then they worked with him on Ex Machina. It's like Johan Johansson, the Dune thing, you know? Yeah, or Blade Runner, was it? Johan did a score for Denny on Blade Runner and they, or at least began one and they went with a different direction. So they brought on Hans Zimmer and uh, his partner. He worked with uh, another composer, but it's very Hans Zimmer if you listen to it again. I need to. Um, not quite as iconic as Dune, but I, I can easily remember how. What is as iconic as Dune? I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. It's up there, at least for me in terms of recency bias. But anyway. Yeah, just generally, though, that movie and the tone and music and the, yeah. the, the, the visuals and the acting and the directing. And Speaking of that, I'd love to drop. And the uh, before the greatness you... of Ab Dune. <laughs> what are you saying? <laughs> I'm just rambling about Dune is all. I would love to throw Johan some quick praise and say that they just, they've been releasing a lot of stuff for Johan Johansson posthumously. Because he passed away like four years ago, I think. Is that what posthumously means? After his death. Okay. Did no, I say I, it wrong? Did no, I mispronounce? I'm just messing with you because oh. you just said posthumously and then defined it. And then I'm making fun. It doesn't You're just You're a keep, cheeky bastard, Just aren't keep you? going. Just keep going. <laughs> They've been releasing stuff from him recently. And one of those pieces has been, I think it was a five track EP. Yeah. Uh, called Gold Dust, which I'm pretty sure it has not been confirmed, but I'm pretty sure is. Yeah. Snippets. There's our word of the day. It's snippets of his Blade Runner score. We should have a word of the day because we always do. Salacious. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're little. Um, well, they're, they're not. They're like full tracks. They're full <laughs> multi minute tracks that can only be Dune. at least the most of it is from Dune. his Blade Runner. Dune. You said Dune. Did I say Dune? Yeah. I swear to God, I'm saying Blade Runner, and you're saying Dune. No, you're saying Blade okay. Runner. But when you told me about this earlier, you said Dune. When you said it's tracks that he was composing for Dune. Oh. Well, that was, that was my bad because he was dead before Denny started production. Yeah. These are his tracks for Blade Runner. Or at least that's what I'm choosing to believe. Amazing music. If you're listening to this, pause <laughs> pause the podcast, search Johan's Gold Dust, and Postcast. listen to that. Podcast. It is amazing. It is amazing. Anyway, pivoting back to Ben Salisbury and Jeff Barrow, these two guys are... <laughs> Some of my favorite composers working today. Jeff Barrow, I think, was one of the founding members of Portishead. And Ben and Jeff have been collaborating for years, I think even before they've started working with Garland. Truly amazing. Yeah. It, the dev score is also fantastic. I, In my mind, it's iconic because yeah. sound for me has always been one of the biggest parts of film. It's why I love... It's huge. Um, all the stuff A24 has been putting out in that genre because all these directors find people composers not the least of which who are going to help them create something that is uh that is has its own identity it is very unique yeah. just like annihilation yeah the score and that is huge and i'm glad you mentioned voice because 
I've never heard the utilization of voice yeah. in in uh, in a soundtrack. Yeah. I guess until Dune. I don't think I have either. To this level, if like uh, I think Archive does something really unique with the score, which is the panting. Yeah. As like a rhythm, I've I've heard other pieces of music from that from taking like music history classes and stuff, but very unique in for for what they're doing with horror. I mean, even Midsummer had some panting stuff, yeah. but and it is so unsettling. Yeah. That somehow the human voice. Can I think make... it's it's like it's the constant like the it's it's honestly the moaning combined with the panting that but makes e- it so even strange. before they get to the moaning though in that track. There's something they do, and I don't know enough about music to, to accurately convey what I'm thinking here, but it's like uh, everything's like off pitch or yes. it's, it's shifted to uh, sound like very well, that's, unnatural. That's what I was trying to say is it's the sound is that it's going between. So everything we know musically is broken up into half steps, but there are notes in between half steps. There's, there's, you know, an infinite amount of, of notes, but, but nobody writes that way, right. but you can, you can transition from one half step to the next half step and hit all of those notes as you go down or up, depending on how you look at it. And it creates that unsettling feeling that you're describing. Yeah. And even outside of the music, um, I'm not sure who's in charge of the sound department, but there's just great sound uh, design. Yeah. Sound design in the show outside of, sure. you know, yeah. Yeah. the music. Because uh, this show relies heavily on not like conventional horror scares, but um, like just establishing dread. And so sometimes mm-hmm. there's nothing, and you're just you're watching your characters move through open space, and yeah. there's just nothing to be heard. Sure. Or little yeah. little things like little pieces of detail in the mix, and that's just one part. I I loved. Tell me the second part. The environment always plays a huge part in shows like this, and we we're just we we're celebrating devs for this before the podcast started and how that remote location Red really Woods. sets the yeah the pace for your show and what you're doing and this also had a remote location at least for the um the present day timeline because this show is split between two timelines our present day dan turner in like Melody. circa 2020 oh. Or it'd be like 2019, I think, for the 25-year split. And so he's off in some remote location doing his work, and it's cutting back and forth into 1994, where Melody is investigating the hotel, which is another great location. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. It wasn't wasn't a hotel. It was an apartment building. Oh, yeah. An apartment building in New York, to me, is just a shitty hotel. hotel. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And he's, he's basically trying to uncover a mystery of what happened to this apartment building because it burned down 25 years ago and he's uncovering the story which turns out to have this cult that's trying to uh bring forth this demon entity interdimensional cosmic creature yeah through this ritual that's essentially the whole story and then yeah that's it yeah, he's uncovering that through the videotapes left behind. So mm-hmm. I really liked the way they cut back between uh, the past and present timelines. We've seen stuff like this before, but it never got uh, overplayed to me. Like it, it always kept my interest. Yes, e- even though we saw that was one thing they did really well. Yeah, because we were just—I was just comparing it to Jupiter's Legacy, mm-hmm. the failed Netflix show based off of Mark Miller's comic books. Rest in peace. <laughs> <laughs> Where the present is 
the same characters, you know, like 80 years later in old person makeup. And then the past is the more engaging part of the show mm-hmm. where Jupiter's legacy really did well in uh, the past storyline, but the current present storyline was just like, please just, you know, skip next yeah, on my, on my DVD to next chapter. So I can move back, back to the past storyline, but archive 81, you're right. Is, equally as good in the present storyline as in the past storyline. Yeah. And I, I found I myself say, engaged in both. Yeah. I would, ag- I would agree. I will say the past definitely feels like the meat of the sandwich and Dan's story in the present, just watching the tapes feels like the bread, but they, they keep it engaging. And I think that is, like I said, due in part to like the location of the story, mm-hmm. the, ho- the house that he's in, he's completely isolated mm-hmm. and there's enough there just to make its own film off of. I think mm-hmm. he's constantly like, finding new parts of the house, which mm-hmm. is interesting. He's mm-hmm. like, what's in the locked room? Stuff like that. Yeah. And it builds tension in that way. Or what's behind this wall once I ax it down? Yeah. <laughs> he keeps discovering like... I know. He like. I feel like he discovers like four different walls that he just cho- decides to chop down or tear apart or like a passage on the floor to go down or something. Yeah. It felt like a Zelda dungeon. <laughs> <laughs> but wait, there's more. <laughs> yeah. And that that's the... Ma- uh, Plot-wise, it's pretty important because they, I guess they recreated the basement of the hotel in that. Yes. There's a lot of- Davenport did. Yeah. There's a lot of this show that's still kind of unclear to me in terms of like- the, And Dan said that he he lined the walls with the same material of the comet so that they don't, they don't need the passing comet to perform the ritual. Is that the mold? Uh, maybe. Oh, you're talking about- But that's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. kind of what I was saying is that's why the last episode really- helped me enjoy the show more as an entire work because there were a bunch of lingering plot holes and questions that I had going into episode eight that they did answer. And some of it was sloppy. Some of the answering was pretty sloppy, but I still accepted it, you know, as canon to this intellectual property that they've created. So yeah, I'm, I'm along for the ride just like everyone else. So, but they answered a lot of those questions of like, another thing was, uh, cause I was like, well, if the ritual brings forth the portal and therefore Dormammu or whatever his name is. <laughs> Kaleko. Kaleko. Cthulhu. Cthulhu. Then why, why was he also coming through the screens attacking Dan? And they had said that like, basically the incantation that they performed during the ritual, the like feeling or whatever of it is imprinted onto the videotapes as well. So when you watch those, it, it unveils the the doorway, the passageway to the alternate universe in the same way that the ritual does. And I was like, oh, that's a, I mean, it's whatever, but. Yeah, I, I love that Cronenberg stuff. Yeah, I liked, <laughs> I liked that, that, that they tried to, they at least tried to answer those questions, mm-hmm. you know, that I had like a lot of the little detail things that like were like kind of pissing me off for the middle of the show, like I was saying. Yeah. Or answered in episode eight. In terms of story, I think I'd I'd agree. They did a pretty good job fleshing out a lot of questions that viewers might have had. If I had to levy any criticism to this show that I otherwise uh, really enjoyed, it would be both that like the final you know climax just really felt kind of uh, like a setup for a second season, which is always kind of an issue for me when I'm watching anything is when it's just you know tune back in next time for the resolution. Um, and also uh, both Dan and Melody felt kind of some of the choices they made in the last episode or two felt a little weak to me. Not, not in terms of 
necessarily being flanderized, but like for instance, when Melody goes back to the apartment after getting out because she wants to save Jess, who's the girl who's going to be part of the ritual. Uh, you might have you just watched the ending, so you'll you'll know when when she gets Jess out through the window, she stays behind for no reason. There's really no reason for her to stay, but she stays, and then she becomes part of the climax of the of the show in her timeline. I think she had the, she had some reason for staying back. It wasn't. I get what you're saying. Like any normal person in that scenario, would be like, I need a GTFO right now. But she had some reason in her own mind that the show explained for her staying behind. You know, I don't agree with the reason, but it it's there. <laughs> you, but do you know what it is? I don't think there was a reason. I think it was she like wanted to like check like like check on the ritual or something. I don't know. I don't. It doesn't matter. Like, Maybe I don't know. It felt weak to me. And also, Dan had a similar thing. Uh, did she go back to to save? She went back explicitly to save Jess. At least that's no, what no, she no. said. After Jess left, I think she went back to save. Whoever else was going to be sacrificed. I think that was it or something. No, like that. I remember this exactly how it happened. She's in the room with Jess. She's in Jess's apartment or her mom's apartment. She gets Jess out through the window. The The janitor guy's banging on the door and she's like going to stay there just to face him because like he, she thinks that he'll pursue them or something. Oh, there, that's right. There's yeah, the nothing else keeping her at the Visser at this point except for Jess. And she gets her out and then she stays. Visser? Because we just- I hardly we, know. Because we've got to get to our third act. Anyway, and then and then that was a good joke. Good job. It wasn't a good joke. <laughs> then Dan has this thing in the finale where the whole time he's driving, he's just like I like you said earlier, he's like, I gotta, you know, figure out what my dad was up to. Yeah. He has this weird connection with Melody because of the space time continuum. It just it felt like he was no longer a character, like he was just like yeah. a bag of um intention. I don't know. But also when he gets into the pocket dimension, which is Kalego's space. Right before he goes in, the woman who's doing the ritual tells Dan, you have a very limited amount of time. You need to focus. You need to do your shit and get out. And as soon as he gets into the pocket dimension, he instantly like sits down to have a 10-minute meal with his family. It's so funny. That is not... Okay, I disagree with that point. But but I because I, I think the pocket dimension, where, where, wherever that space is, it seems to have an attribute of trying to tie, tie a person down. Well, and she tells him that emotionally or whatever. Yeah. But come on, you see your, (laughs) you see your family for the first time since they burned in your home. I I agree with your house that burned down with your whole family inside. You see them for the first time in 20 years and you, you know, you're not going to sit down or 25 years and sit down and be with your family. Like, come on. That's true. That's true. You would. I would. You would sit down family. with your family. I love my family. If they burn down in your your childhood home. If I had to save a pretty girl, I'm going to move along. <laughs> we got limited time. All I'm saying is, <laughs> and then and then the way the pocket dimension scene ends is he's getting her out. And it was a very strange series of events because Samuel, this uh, cult leader dude, shows up, starts pulling Melody away from him. Oh, yeah, uh, that was weird. And Dan's there like, hold, they're like holding hands and they're like being torn apart, you know? Yeah. But he's like, what, what's keeping you from not just going with her or helping her? It's kind or of, walking through the door. Yeah. yeah. Samuel pulls Melody through the portal, which we're unclear until the final scene. Like, is that the right portal? Is, yeah. this, is this not some kind of ploy by Kalego to fuck yeah. with our main characters? Also, where's Samuel? And then just and then it ends. And like Dan apparently just didn't get out. And he's now, well, as the last part of our show is we see Melody and Dan have switched timelines. Melody's now out with our present people. And Dan's stuck in the past because we need a second season. So. Single P. 
and I get it. I'd love to see more. It just felt like I, w- I wasn't super satisfied with leaving it there. But... I was. I loved where it ended. I'm all for it. Like as long as he wasn't stuck in the pocket dimension, because that's kind of how you pitched it to me when you when you spoiled it for me 60 minutes before I watched it. You always want. You always want. I know. Wanted I know. I'm just messing. But I was happy that he was stuck in the past. Hopefully, I know you said it could be like Kalego's mind palace trap and Dan's like trapped in his mind or whatever in his space. Yeah, maybe. But I think because everyone, when they were in that space in that other, other place, I think is what they called it throughout the show. And they seem to be alone in those places mm-hmm. in, in the manner of like, they felt alone that his interaction with the nurse seemed like she was an actual person and that he's actually stuck in the past. Yeah. So I, I think he is, and that would be, I, I'm excited about that more than I am about him being stuck in a, in the dimension still. There's a lot of cool story they could do there. Um, it just, the first thing I thought of was like how good the ending to Stranger Things season one was, cause it completely wrapped our season, but it left it. So there's a tease for potential future, you know, installments. Cause you have Will Byers looking in the mirror and he's like, ah, is it truly gone? And he spits, it, he spits up a slug. Yeah. But the season, it felt conclusive and it felt satisfying as an end. And this was like, it felt mm-hmm. just like, well, when season two, cause I, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know, but it did not ruin the journey for me. And I yeah, it, immediately, I haven't yet, but I immediately wanted to go back to start watching it again, or at least scenes from it, because there are moments in this show that for me is like pinnacle, uh, whatever we would call horror adjacent, where it's not, you know, like popcorn pop, like paranormal horror, mm-hmm. but it's that good, it's con- that quality con- con- shit. It's not conventional horror. Yeah. Because I love just the the dread atmosphere Yeah, where you can really, ju- it's like thick, like it's weighing on you and the characters course and this show had a lot to say too just in its subtext about stuff like religion which i always love um both literally like with the like uh, melody's past in the catholic school and also just with the cult as this analog for um i mean you know religion as a cult we uh, we've talked about stuff like that on the show before but it's it's a it's a metaphor that i'll never get tired of or like a you know, a kind of storytelling that is so interesting because this is human nature. It's something that is, and this is how I think Samuel even tried to sell it to to people when he was bringing them into this cult is that pe- people want to be part of something greater, something more, you know, something bigger than themselves. And so they're, they're just willing to put reason aside and logic and, and rational thinking and just, uh-huh. you know. For more on that, you can listen to our Midnight Mass episode. Yeah. But I, I love that stuff. And cult leaders are always fascinating, like the the charismatic power of individuals to sway people to sure. what seems like, from a viewer's perspective of a show like this, it's like, you're clearly in a bad spot. Like this is, <laughs> it's like you know, the horror trope of why don't you just leave the house? Mm-hmm. And, you know, for the most part, Melody was, you know, up until the end, she's a pretty, very intelligent character. <laughs> and I just wish she had just left and I wanted to, see her get out but she technically did get out she's with us now in 2022 so i don't know i just i i really like the show and i i hope netflix i obviously they're they're gonna make a second season but Mm -hmm. i hope to see more content like this from netflix where there's there's an inspiration in in the storytelling sure i agree with you that 
a lot of this show, I think one of the original things you said to me was that it had quality that a lot of Netflix productions lack and uh, like a tone and a quality that is sort of unmatched when it comes to this kind of horror. But for me, it did teeter on being conventional horror and then also the horror adjacent that we love so much that that drips and bleeds tone. Well, it still has to be accessible by the yes. masses. That's and Netflix's... Yeah, and I think I think that is what this is. And so it's it's a bit of both. And therefore, in my mind, it's not perfect. Yeah. But it is better than the majority of what Netflix produces. So I'm happy with it. I would recommend it uh, to anyone that can withstand that feeling of dread and horror and that is entertained by that. And if you like that, you should check out the Archive 81 uh, you know, audio drama, the podcast they do, because mm. that's where it all began. And I'm pretty sure it was an original story those guys prepared for that. And I love the concept of like a podcast drama. I think that's really cool. Mm -hmm. And they played on that really um, in a cool way in the show too. Like Dan's friend is doing that same thing. He's a podcast drama guy. Yeah. He's into that whole occult thing. Yep. And that all that stuff provides a really fun context for the show. Everything they did with tapes and cassettes was really interesting to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I love when you have sequences in a show like this where people are just working with their hands and it has this kind of investigative quality to it. Like, we got to put the tape together and see what's on it. What's on the tape? We have to go back. I love, I wish I could have been with you in the 90s to like, you know. I remember as a kid, I, I was growing up just as the Be Kind Rewind days were ending, you know, of like the, the video cassette was on its way out. And so yeah. I missed a lot of that. Yeah. But there's that's there's some nostalgia there that's like yeah there's definitely also that's totally a, a great point to bring up at this because we haven't even talked about it but there's a huge nostalgic hook here as well mm -hmm. which which for me like I was remembering a bunch of stuff about you know VHS high eight that kind of thing that I really I used to shoot on that stuff I used to shoot videos all the time yeah they're constantly referencing that tech too in the yeah. show and not just the tech but this show is more than most others I've seen of its kind chock full of references to stuff like Tarkovsky. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so much homage to like the twilight zone era of, you know, television. Yeah. And, it's, I don't know. Snuff films. A lot of Easter eggs for, uh, not just cinema fans, but you know, uh, media and what the yeah. 20th century had to offer. Yeah. I think it's both accessible. Like you just said, maybe now we're spinning in circles, but accessible by, you know, wide audiences who just are fans of media and then also people who are into very niche auteur things yeah. as well. It's so cool. would recommend. Yeah. Ultimately Here's to uh, a lot of people. Probably going to be my favorite part of this podcast, which is playing some of the music and listeners be careful because you may experience adverse effects while listening to this music. Deep guttural turmoil. If you do, you could be a witch. <laughs> <laughs>